Section 32 of Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Books. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Books. Edited by Charles W. Eliot. Preface to Cromwell. Part 2. It is interesting to study the first appearance and the progress of the grotesque in modern times. At first, it is an invasion, an eruption, an overflow, as of a torrent that has burst its banks. It rushes through the expiring Latin literature, imparts some coloring to Perseus, Petronius, and Juvenal, and leaves behind it the goldenness of Apuleius. Thence, it diffuses itself through the imaginations of the new nations that are remodeling Europe. It abounds in the work of the fabulists, the chroniclers, the romancists. We see it make its way from the south to the north. It disports itself in the dreams of the Teutonic nations, and at the same time vivifies with its breath the admirable Spanish romanceros, a veritable Iliad of the age of chivalry. For example, it is the grotesque which describes thus, in the Roman de la Rose, an august ceremonial, the election of a king. A long-shanked knave they chose, I wis, of all their men the boniest. More especially, it imposes its characteristic qualities upon that wonderful architecture which, in the Middle Ages, takes the place of all the arts. It affixes its mark on the facades of cathedrals, frames its hells and purgatories in the ogive arches of great doorways, portrays them in brilliant hues on window-glass, exhibits its monsters, its bulldogs, its imps about capitals, along friezes, on the edges of roofs. It flounds itself in numberless shapes on the wooden facades of houses, on the stone facades of chateaux, on the marble facades of palaces. From the arts it makes its way into the national manners, and while it stirs applause from the people for the graciosos of comedy, it gives to the king's court jesters. Later, in the age of etiquette, it will show us Caron on the very edge of Louis XIV's bed. Meanwhile, it decorates coats of arms and draws upon night-shields the symbolic hieroglyphs of feudalism. From the manners, it makes its way into the laws. Numberless strange customs attest its passage through the institutions of the Middle Ages. Just as it represented Thespis, smeared with wine-lees, leaping in her tomb, it dances with the basoque on the famous marble-table which served at the same time, as a stage for the popular farces and for the royal banquets. Finally, having made its way into the arts, the manners, and the laws, it enters even the church. In every Catholic city we see it organizing some one of those curious ceremonies, those strange processions, wherein religion is attended by all varieties of superstition. The sublime attended by all the forms of the grotesque. To paint it in one stroke, so great is its vigor, its energy, its creative sap, at the dawn of letters, 
that it casts at the outset upon the threshold of modern poetry three burlesque homers ariosto in italy cervantes in spain rabelais in france it would be mere surplusage to dwell further upon the influence of the grotesque in the third civilization everything tends to show its close creative alliance with the beautiful in the so-called romantic period even among the simplest popular legends there are none which do not somewhere with an admirable instinct solve this mystery of modern art antiquity could not have produced beauty and the beast it is true that at the period at which we have arrived the predominance of the grotesque over the sublime in literature is clearly indicated but it is a spasm of reaction an eager thirst for novelty which is but temporary it is an initial wave which gradually recedes the type of the beautiful will soon resume its rights and its role which is not to exclude the other principle but to prevail over it it is time that the grotesque should be content with a corner of the picture in murillo's loyal frescoes in the sacred pages of veronese content to be introduced in two marvellous last judgments in which art will take a just pride in the scene of fascination and horror with which michelangelo will embellish the vatican in those awe-inspiring represervations of the fall of man which Rubin will throw upon the arches of the cathedral of antwerp the time has come when the balance between the two principles is to be established a man a poet king poeta soverano as dante calls homer is about to adjust everything the two rival genii combine their flames and thence issues shakespeare we have now reached the poetic culmination of modern times shakespeare is the drama and the drama which with the same breath moulds the grotesque and the sublime the terrible and the absurd tragedy and comedy the drama is a distinguishing characteristic of the third epoch of poetry of the literature of the present day thus to sum up hurriedly the facts that we have noted thus far poetry has three periods each of which corresponds to an epoch of civilization the ode the epic and the drama primitive times are lyrical ancient times epical modern times dramatic the ode sings of eternity the epic imparts solemnity to history the drama depicts life the characteristic of the first poetry is ingenuousness of the second simplicity of the third truth the rhapsodists mark the transition from the lyric to the epic poets as do the romancists that from the lyric to the dramatic poets historians appear in the second period chroniclers and critics in the third the characters of the old are colossi adam cain noah those of the epic are giants achilles atreus orestes those of the drama are men hamlet macbeth othello 
the ode lives upon the ideal the epic upon the grandiose the drama upon the real lastly this threefold poetry flows from three great sources the bible homer shakespeare such then and we confine ourselves herein to noting a single result such are the diverse aspects of thought in the different epochs of mankind and of civilization such are its three faces in youth in manhood in old age whether one examines one literature by itself or all literatures en masse one will always reach the same result the lyric poets before the epic poets the epic poets before the dramatic poets in france malherbe before chapelaine chapelaine before corneille in ancient greece orpheus before homer homer before aeschylus in the first of all books genesis before kings kings before job or to come back to that monumental scale of all ages of poetry which we ran over a moment since the bible before the iliad the iliad before shakespeare in a word civilization begins by singing of its dreams then narrates its doings and lastly sets about describing what it thinks it is let us say in passing because of this last that the drama combining the most opposed qualities may be at the same time full of profundity and full of relief philosophical and picturesque it would be logical to add here that everything in nature and in life passes through these three phases the lyric the epic and the dramatic because everything is born acts and dies if it were not absurd to confound the fantastic conceits of the imagination with the stern deductions of the reasoning faculty a poet might say that the rising of the sun for example is a hymn noonday a brilliant epic and sunset a gloomy drama wherein day and night life and death contend for mastery but that would be poetry folly perhaps and what does it prove let us hold to the facts marshalled above let us supplement them too by an important observation namely that we have in no wise pretended to assign exclusive limits to the three epochs of poetry but simply to set forth their predominant characteristics the bible that divine lyric monument contains in germ as we suggested a moment ago an epic and a drama kings and job in the homeric poems one is conscious of a clinging reminiscence of lyric poetry and of a beginning of dramatic poetry ode and drama meet in the epic there is a touch of all in each but in each there exists a generative element to which all the other elements give place and which imposes its own character upon the whole the drama is complete poetry the ode and the epic contain it only in germ it contains both of them in a state of high development and epitomizes both surely he who said the french have not the epic brain 
said a true and clever thing. If he had said the moderns, the clever remark would have been profound. It is beyond question, however, that there is epic genius in that marvelous Atali, so exalted and so simple in its sublimity that the royal century was unable to comprehend it. It is certain, too, that the series of Shakespeare's chronicle dramas presents a grand epic aspect, but it is lyric poetry, above all, that befits the drama. It never embarrasses it, adapts itself to all its caprices, disports itself in all forms, sometimes sublime as in Ariel, sometimes grotesque as in Caliban. Our era, being above all else dramatic, is, for that very reason, eminently lyric. There is more than one connection between the beginning and the end. The sunset has some features of the sunrise. The old man becomes a child once more. But this second childhood is not like the first. It is as melancholy as the other is joyous. It is the same with lyric poetry. Dazzling, dreamy at the dawn of civilization, it reappears solemn and pensive at its decline. The Bible opens joyously with Genesis and comes to a close with the threatening Apocalypse. The modern ode is still inspired, but is no longer ignorant. It meditates more than it scrutinizes. Its musing is melancholy. We see by its painful labor that the muse has taken the drama for her mate. To make clear by a metaphor the ideas that we have ventured to put forth, we will compare early lyric poetry to a placid lake which reflects the clouds and stars. The epic is the stream which flows from the lake and rushes on, reflecting its banks, forests, fields and cities, until it throws itself into the ocean of the drama. Like the lake, the drama reflects the sky. Like the stream, it reflects its banks, but it alone has tempests and measureless depths. The drama, then, is the goal to which everything in modern poetry leads. Paradise Lost is a drama before it is an epic. As we know, it first presented itself to the poet's imagination in the first of these forms, and as a drama it always remains in the reader's memory. So prominent is the old dramatic framework still beneath Milton's epic structure. When Dante had finished his terrible inferno, when he had closed its doors and not remained safe to give his work a name, the unerring instinct of his genius showed him that that multiform poem was an emanation of the drama, not of the epic. And on the front of that gigantic monument, he wrote with his pen of bronze, Divina Commedia. Thus we see that the only two poets of modern times who are of Shakespeare's stature follow him in unity of design. They coincide with him in imparting a dramatic tinge to all our poetry. Like him, they blend the grotesque with the sublime, and far from standing by themselves in the great literary ensemble that rests upon Shakespeare, 
Dante and Milton are, in some sort, the two supporting abutments of the edifice of which he is the central pillar, the buttresses of the arch of which he is the keystone. Permit us, at this point, to recur to certain ideas already suggested, which, however, it is necessary to emphasize. We have arrived, and now we must set out again. On the day when Christianity said to men, Thou art twofold, thou art made up of two beings, one perishable, the other immortal, one carnal, the other ethereal, one enslaved by appetites, cravings, and passions, the other borne aloft on the wings of enthusiasm and reverie. In a word, the one always stooping toward the earth, its mother, the other always darting up toward heaven, its fatherland. On that day the drama was created. Is it in truth anything other than that contrast of every day, that struggle of every moment, between two opposing principles which are ever face to face in life, and which dispute possession of men from the cradle to the tomb? The poetry born of Christianity, the poetry of our time, is therefore the drama, the real results from the wholly natural combination of two types, the sublime and the grotesque, which meet in the drama as they meet in life and in creation. For true poetry, complete poetry, consists in the harmony of contraries. Hence, it is time to say aloud, and it is here, above all, that exceptions prove the rule, that everything that exists in nature exists in art. On taking one stand at this point of view, to pass judgment on our petty conventional rules, to disentangle all those scholastic labyrinths, to solve all those trivial problems which the critics of the last two centuries have laboriously built up about the art, one is struck by the promptitude with which the question of the modern stage is made clear and distinct. The drama has but to take a step to break all the spider's webs with which the militia of Lilliput have attempted to fetter its sleep. And so, let adulpated pedants, one does not exclude the other, claim that the deformed, the ugly, the grotesque, should never be imitated in art. One replies that the grotesque is comedy, and that comedy, apparently, makes a part of art. Tartuffe is not handsome, Boursognat is not noble, but Boursognat and Tartuffe are admirable flashes of art. If driven back from this entrenchment to their second line of custom-houses, they renew their prohibition of the grotesque coupled with the sublime, of comedy melted into tragedy. We prove to them that, in the poetry of Christian nations, the first of these two types represents the human beast, the second the soul. These two stalks of art, if we prevent their branches from mingling, if we persistently separate them, will produce by way of fruit, on the one hand, abstract vices and absurdities, on the other, abstract crime, heroism and virtue. 
the two types thus isolated and left to themselves will go each its own way leaving the real between them at the left hand of one at the right hand of the other whence it follows that after all these abstractions there will remain something to represent men after these tragedies and comedies something to create the drama in the drama as it may be conceived at least if not executed all things are connected and follow one another as in real life the body plays its part no less than the mind and men and events set in motion by this twofold agent pass across the stage burlesque and terrible in turn and sometimes both at once thus the judge will say off with his head and let us go to dinner thus the roman senate will deliberate over domitian's turban thus socrates drinking the hemlock and discoursing on the immortal soul and the only god will interrupt himself to suggest that a cook be sacrificed to Asclepius. Thus Elizabeth will swear and talk Latin. Thus Richelieu will submit to Joseph the Capuchin, and Louis the Eleventh to his barber, Maître Olivier le Diable. Thus Cromwell will say, I have Parliament in my bag, and the King in my pocket. Or, with the hand that signed the death sentence of Charles I, smear with ink the face of a regicide, who smilingly returns the compliment. Thus Caesar, in his triumphal car, will be afraid of overturning. For men of genius, however great they be, have always within them a touch of the beast which mocks at their intelligence. Therein they are akin to mankind in general, for therein they are dramatic. It is but a step from the sublime to the ridiculous, said Napoleon, when he was convinced that he was mere man, and that outburst of a soul on fire illumines art and history at once. That cry of anguish is the résumé of drama and of life. It is a striking fact that all these contrasts are met with in the poets themselves, taken as men, by dint of meditating upon existence, of laying stress upon its bitter irony, of pouring floods of sarcasm and raillery upon our infirmities, the very men who make us laugh so heartily become profoundly sad. These Demogratuses are Heraclituses as well. Beaumarchais was surly, Molière gloomy, Shakespeare melancholy. The fact is, then, that the grotesque is one of the supreme beauties of the drama. It is not simply an appropriate element of it, but is oftentimes a necessity. Sometimes it appears in homogeneous masses and entire characters, as Dodin, Procyat, Trissotin, Pridoison, Juliet's nurse, sometimes impregnated with terror, as Richard III, Bégea, Tartuffe, Mephistopheles, sometimes, too, with a veal of grace and refinement, as Figaro, Osric, Mercutio, Don Juan. It finds its way in everywhere, for just as the most commonplace have their occasional moments of sublimity, so the most exalted 
frequently pay tribute to the trivial and ridiculous. Thus, often impalpable, often imperceptible, it is always present on the stage, even when it says nothing, even when it keeps out of sight. Thanks to it, there is no thought of monotony. Sometimes it injects laughter, sometimes horror into tragedy. It will bring Romeo face to face with the apothecary, Macbeth with the witches, Hamlet with the grave-diggers. Sometimes it may, without discord, as in the scene between King Lear and his jester, mingle its shrill voice with the most sublime, the most dismal, the dreamiest music of the soul. That is what Shakespeare alone among all has succeeded in doing, in a fashion of his own, which it would be no less fruitless than impossible to imitate. Shakespeare, the god of the stage, in whom, as in a trinity, the three characteristic geniuses of our stage, Corneille, Molière, Beaumarchais, seem united. We see how quickly the arbitrary distinction between the species of poetry vanishes before common sense and taste. No less easily one might demolish the alleged rule of the two unities. We say two and not three unities, because unity of plot or of ensemble, the only true and well-founded one, was long ago removed from the sphere of discussion. Distinguished contemporaries, foreigners and Frenchmen, have already attacked, both in theory and in practice, that fundamental law of the pseudo-Aristotelian code. Indeed, the combat was not likely to be a long one. At the first blow, it cracked. So warm-eaten was that timber of the old scholastic hovel. The strange thing is that the slaves of routine pretend to rest their rule of the two unities on probability, whereas reality is the very thing that destroys it. Indeed, what could be more improbable and absurd than this porch or peristyle or antechamber, vulgar places where our tragedies are obliging enough to develop themselves, whither conspirators come, no one knows whence, to declaim against the tyrant, and the tyrant to declaim against the conspirators, each in turn, as if they had said to one another, in bucolic phrase, alternis cantemus, amant alterna camenae. Where did any one ever see a porch or peristyle of that sort? What could be more opposed? We will not say to the truth, for the scholastics hold it very cheap, but to probability. The result is that everything that is too characteristic, too intimate, too local, to happen in the antechamber or on the street corner, that is to say, the whole drama, takes place in the wings. We see on the stage only the elbows of the plot, so to speak. Its hands are somewhere else. Instead of scenes, we have narrative. Instead of tableau, descriptions. Solemn-faced characters, placed, as in the old chorus, between the drama and ourselves, Tell us what is going on in the temple, in the palace, on the public square, until we are tempted many a time to call out to them, Indeed, then take us there. It must be very entertaining, a fine sight. To which they would reply, no doubt. 
it is quite possible that it might entertain or interest you but that isn't the question we are the guardians of the dignity of the french milpomene and there you are but someone will say this rule that you discard is borrowed from the greek drama wherein pray do the greek stage and drama resemble our stage and drama moreover we have already shown that the vast extent of the ancient stage enabled it to include a whole locality so that the poet could according to the exigencies of the plot transport it at his pleasure from one part of the stage to another which is practically equivalent to a change of stage setting curious contradiction the greek theatre restricted as it was to a national and religious object was much more free than ours whose only object is the enjoyment and if you please the instruction of the spectator the reason is that the one obeys only the laws that are suited to it while the other takes upon itself conditions of existence which are absolutely foreign to its essence one is artistic the other artificial people are beginning to understand in our day that exact localization is one of the first elements of reality the speaking or acting characters are not the only ones who engrave on the minds of the spectators a faithful representation of the facts the place where this or that catastrophe took place becomes a terrible and inseparable witness thereof and the absence of silent characters of this sort would make the greatest scenes of history incomplete in the drama would the poet dare to murder rizio elsewhere than in mary stuart's chamber to stab henry the fourth elsewhere than in hue de la ferronnerie all blocked with drays and carriages to burn jeanne d'arc elsewhere than in the vieux marché to dispatch the duc de guise elsewhere than in that chateau of blois where his ambition roused the popular assemblage to frenzy to behead charles i and louis the sixteenth elsewhere than in those ill-omened localities whence whitehall or the tuileries may be seen as if their scaffolds were appurtenances of their palaces unity of time rests on no firmer foundation than unity of place a plot forcibly confined within twenty-four hours is as absurd as one can find within a peristyle every plot has its proper duration as well as its appropriate place think of administering the same dose of time to all events of applying the same measure to everything you would laugh at a cobbler who should attempt to put the same shoe on every foot to cross unity of time and unity of place like the bars of a cage and pedantically to introduce therein in the name of aristotle all the deeds all the nations all the figures which providence sets before us in such vast numbers in real life to proceed thus is to mutilate men and things to cause history to make wry faces let us say rather that everything will die in the operation and so the dogmatic mutilators reach their ordinary result what was alive in the chronicles is dead in tragedy that is why the cage of the unities often contains only a skeleton 
Then, if twenty-four hours can be comprised in two, it is a logical consequence that four hours may contain forty-eight. Thus, Shakespeare's unity must be different from Corneille's. Tis pity. But these are the wretched quibbles with which mediocrity, envy, and routine has pastured genius for two centuries past. By such means the flight of our great poets has been cut short. Their wings have been clipped with the scissors of the unities. And what has been given us in exchange for the eagle feathers stolen from Corneille and Racine? Campistron. We imagine that someone may say, there's something in too frequent changes of scene which confuses and fatigues the spectator and which produces a bewildering effect on his attention. It may be, too, that many-fold transitions from place to place, from one time to another time, demand explanations which repel the attention. One should also avoid leaving, in the midst of a plot, gaps which prevent the different parts of the drama from adhering closely to one another, and which, moreover, puzzle the spectator, because he does not know what there may be in those gaps. But these are precisely the difficulties which art has to meet. These are some of the obstacles peculiar to one subject or another, as to which it would be impossible to pass judgment once for all. It is for genius to overcome, not for treatises or poetry to evade them. A final argument, taken from the very bowels of the art, would of itself suffice to show the absurdity of the rule of the two unities. It is the existence of the third unity, unity of plot, the only one that is universally admitted, because it results from a fact. Neither the human eye nor the human mind can grasp more than one ensemble at one time. This one is as essential as the other two are useless. It is the one which fixes the viewpoint of the drama. Now, by that very fact, it excludes the other two. There can no more be three unities in the drama than three horizons in a picture. But let us be careful not to confound unity with simplicity of plot. The former does not in any way exclude the secondary plots on which the principal plot may depend. It is necessary only that these parts, being skillfully subordinated to the general plan, shall tend constantly toward the central plot, and group themselves about it at the various stages, or rather, on the various levels of the drama. Unity of plot is the stage law of perspective. But, the customs officers of thought will cry, great geniuses have submitted to these rules which you spurn. Unfortunately, yes. But what would those admirable men have done if they had been left to themselves? At all events, they did not accept your chains without a struggle. You should have seen how Pierre Corneille, worried and harassed at his first step in the art on account of his marvelous work, Lécide, struggled under Marais, Clavray, Daubignat, and Scudery. How he denounced to posterity the violent attack of those men, who, he says, made themselves all white with Aristotle. You should read how they said to him, 
and we quote from books of the time. Young man, you must learn before you teach. And unless one is a scaliger or a Heinzius, that is intolerable. Thereupon, Corneille rebels and asks if their purpose is to force him much below Claveret. Here Scudery waxes indignant at such a display of pride and reminds the thrice great author of Le Cid of the modest words in which Tasso, the greatest man of his age, began his apology for the finest of his works against the bitterest and most unjust censure, perhaps, that will ever be pronounced. Monsieur Corneille, he adds, shows in his replies that he is as far removed from that author's moderation as from his merit. The young man, so justly and gently reproved, dares to protest. Thereupon Scudery returns to the charge. He calls to his assistance the eminent academy. Pronounce, O oh my judges, a decree worthy of your eminence, which will give all Europe to know that Lycide is not the chef d'oeuvre of the greatest man in France, but the least judicious performance of Monsieur Corneille himself. You are bound to do it, both for your own private renown and for that of our people in general, who are concerned in this matter, inasmuch as foreigners who may see this precious masterpiece, they who have possessed a Tasso or a Guarini, might think that our greatest masters were no more than apprentices. These few instructive lines contain the everlasting tactics of envious routine against growing talent, tactics which are still followed in our own day, and which, for example, added such a curious page to the youthful essays of Lord Byron. Scudery gives us its quintessence. In like manner, the earlier works of a man of genius are always preferred to the newer ones, in order to prove that he is going down instead of up. Melite and La Galerie du Palais placed above Le Cid, and the names of the dead are always thrown at the heads of the living, Corneille stoned with Tasso and Guarini, as later Racine will be stoned with Corneille, Voltaire with Racine, and as today everyone who shows signs of rising is stoned with Corneille, Racine and Voltaire. These tactics, as will be seen, are well worn, but they must be effective as they are still in use. However, the poor devil of a great man still breathed. Here we cannot help but admire the way in which Scudery, the bully of this tragic comedy, forced to the wall, blackguards and maltreats him. How pitilessly he unmasks his classical artillery. How he shows the author of Le Cid what the episodes should be, according to Aristotle, who tells us in the tenth and sixteenth chapters of his poetics, how he crushes Corneille in the name of the same Aristotle, in the eleventh chapter of his Art of Poetry, wherein we find the condemnation of Lecide, in the name of Plato, in the tenth book of his Republic, in the name of Marcellinus, as may be seen in the twenty-seventh book, in the name of the tragedies of Niobe and Jephthah, in the name of the Ajax of Sophocles, in the name of the example of Euripides, in the name of Heinsius, 
Chapter Six of the Constitution of Tragedy, and the younger Scaliger in his poems, and finally in the name of the canonists and jurisconsults, under the title Nuptials. The first arguments were addressed to the academy. The last one was aimed at the cardinal. After the pinpricks, the blow with a club. A judge was needed to decide the question. Chaplain gave judgment. Corneille saw that he was doomed. The lion was muzzled. Or, as was said at the time, the crow, Corneille, was plucked. Now comes the painful side of this grotesque performance. After he had been thus quenched at his first flash, this genius, thoroughly modern, fed upon the Middle Ages in Spain, being compelled to lie to himself and to hark back to ancient times, drew for us that Castilian Rome, which is sublime beyond question, but in which, except perhaps in Nicomede, which was so ridiculed by the eighteenth century for its dignified and simple coloring, we find neither the real Rome nor the true Corneille. Racine was treated to the same persecution, but did not make the same resistance. Neither in his genius nor in his character was there any of Corneille's lofty asperity. He submitted in silence, and sacrificed to the scorn of his time his enchanting elegy of Esther, his magnificent epic Atali, so that we can but believe that, if he had not been paralyzed as he was by the prejudices of his epic, if he had come in contact less frequently with the classic Cremfish, he would not have failed to introduce Locuste in his drama between Narcisse and Neron, and above all things would not have relegated to the wings the admirable scene of the banquet at which Seneca's pupil poisons Britannicus in the cup of reconciliation. But can we demand of the bird that he fly under the receiver of an air-pump? What a multitude of beautiful scenes the people of taste have cost us, from Scuderi to La Arpe. A noble work might be composed of all that their scorching breath has withered in its germ. However, our great poets have found a way nonetheless to cause their genius to blaze forth through all these obstacles. Often, the attempt to confine them behind walls of dogmas and rules is vain. Like the Hebrew giant, they carry their prison doors with them to the mountains. But still, the same refrain is repeated, and will be, no doubt, for a long while to come. Follow the rules. Copy the models. It was the rules that shaped the models. One moment. In that case, there are two sorts of models. Those which are made according to the rules, and prior to them, those according to which the rules were made. Now, in which of these two categories should genius seek a place for itself? Although it is always disagreeable to come in contact with pedants, is it not a thousand times better to give them lessons than to receive lessons from them? And then, copy. Is the reflection equal to the light? Is the satellite which travels unceasingly in the same circle equal to the central creative planet? With all his poetry, Virgil is no more than the moon of Homer. And whom are we to copy, I pray to know? The ancients? 
we have just shown that their stage has nothing in common with ours. Moreover, Voltaire, who will have none of Shakespeare, will have none of the Greeks either. Let him tell us why. The Greeks venture to produce scenes no less revolting to us. Hippolyte, crushed by his fall, counts his wounds and utters doleful cries. Philoctetes falls in his paroxysms of pain. Black blood flows from his wound. Oedipus, covered with the blood that still drops from the sockets of the eyes he has torn out, complains bitterly of gods and men. We hear the shrieks of Clytemnestra, murdered by her own son, and Electra on the stage cries, Strike! Spare her not! She did not spare our father. Prometheus is fastened to a rock by nails, driven through his stomach and his arms. The Furies reply to Clytemnestra's bleeding shade with inarticulate roars. Art was in its infancy in the time of Aeschylus, as it was in London in Shakespeare's time. End of Part 2